Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's only one week to go before we do our giveaway for my book, John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform and send us a screenshot of it to onpolitics at tvo.org. We'll announce the winner next week. Don't wait. Review today. And best of luck, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Toronto and Ottawa are not the only cities getting strong mayor powers from the province. While we're at it, less than a week to go until Ontario's capital city chooses a new mayor. And speaking of mayors, the mayor of Mississauga makes it official. Bonnie Crombie jumps into the Ontario Liberal leadership race. And TVO's affordability reporter Kat Eschner joins us for a deep dive on the housing and rental situation the next Toronto mayor will inherit. It's June 20th, 2023, so let's get to it. Well, partner, I think this is the first podcast we've done since the Stanley Cup was awarded to the Vegas Golden Knights and not the Toronto Maple Leafs for the 56th year in a row. Uh, out of curiosity, did you watch Game 5 and then the, the Stanley Cup presentation itself thereafter? No, the only strongly held belief I have about hockey is that I don't watch any game where one of the teams does not experience natural snow or ice. <laughs> well, that lets out a lot of teams, my friend. All the California teams, two Florida teams, a team in Dallas, the Vegas Golden Knights, to be sure. Uh, that, that you're kind of narrowing yourself yeah, down basically, there. Basically, yeah, New York and points north, I think. <laughs> You don't know what you're missing. Okay. Let's get to the mailbag. We do enjoy getting your feedback at the email address onpolitics at tvo.org. JMM, what's up this week? Uh, Well, we've got a lot of emails, so we're trying to get through them uh, in order. Uh, Here's one from Peter who writes, I really enjoy your podcast. Have you considered a regular feature where JMM explains the intricate policy details of a piece of legislation that the Bill Davis government passed in the 1970s (laughs) or early 80s? That would make you both happy, no? (laughs) Yes, actually. (laughs) To me, it's pretty clear that Pierre and Justin Trudeau are the most influential parent-child duo in the history of Canadian federal politics. Uh, This is uh, still Peter's email. Uh, Regardless of what one thinks of them politically, I'd like to get your opinions on who is the most influential parent-child duo in Ontario political history. Ooh, love this question. Peter, I love this question. Okay, Um, I'm going to throw this out here, and this is obviously not scientific. It's just my impressions, having covered Queen's Park for 40 years, so I hope it's worth something. I'm going to put the Nixon family uh, at the top of my list, and that would be Harry Nixon, who was the Premier of Ontario in 1943, died uh, in office as the MPP for Brandt. He was the longest-serving MPP ever in Ontario history. He had that seat for 43 years, and his son, Robert Nixon, succeeded him in 1962, and Bob Nixon became the Ontario Liberal leader in 1967. Um, He led his party into elections in 67, 71, and 75. He then became the finance minister for David Peterson in 1985 and went on to become the high commissioner in Great Britain in 1991. Uh, Premier Bob Ray gave him that appointment. And I'm not done because there's a third generation. His daughter, Harry Nixon's granddaughter, Jane Stewart, was a cabinet minister in Jean Chrétien's governments in the 1990s. So we got three generations of politics there. Harry Nixon, Bob Nixon, Jane Stewart. I would throw in some honorable mentions here if I'm allowed to do that. 
Uh, Alan Grossman was a cabinet minister in the Robarts and Davis governments, and his son Larry Grossman uh, was not only a Davis cabinet minister, but also a one-time leader of the Ontario PC party. We can't forget Brian Mulroney, former prime minister of the country, and his daughter Caroline, uh, who is in cabinet right now. And, um, well, shall we put the premier on this list, too? His father, Doug Ford Sr., was a backbench MPP in the Mike Harris years. And, of course, his son, Doug Ford Jr., is now the premier of Ontario. So there's a bunch of ideas for that one. I think I would add one more. Similar to uh, Doug Ford Sr. and Jr., of course, is Dalton McGinty Sr. and Jr. There we go. Right. Yes. Sr. was a backbench liberal MPP for three years, and then Jr. became... The longest-serving liberal premier of Ontario in 129 years. So he, did, he, you know, in terms of longevity... Put up some numbers. <laughs> put up some numbers. That's exactly right. Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show, please email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Now, on to issue one. At first, it was just Toronto and Ottawa, the two biggest cities in Ontario, whose mayors were getting so-called strong mayor powers from the province. But it seems a lot of other mayors in more than two dozen other municipalities want those powers as well. And so here they come. JMM, the details if you would. On Friday last week, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark announced that the government would be expanding strong mayor powers to 26 other municipalities in Ontario. This includes almost all of the cities with populations over 100,000, the members of the so-called Ontario Big City Mayor's Caucus. Those cities include something like 70% of the population of the province, so the odds are very good that if you're listening to this podcast right now, you live in a city whose mayor is getting stronger powers. And let's just uh, hit this nail on the head here because we hear this expression, strong mayor powers all the time. What are those powers in fact? Probably the most controversial one is uh, what uh, I have referred to and what others have referred to as sort of minority rule. Uh, the mayor can uh, propose measures to council and uh, in certain categories that mesh with provincial priorities. He only needs, uh, he or she uh, only needs a uh, support of one third of council for those measures to pass. Uh, the powers go uh, substantially beyond that. Uh, the mayor also has a, a veto uh, that uh, they can use in certain circumstances. Uh, they can hire the city's uh, chief administrative officer or city manager. Uh, several other key city uh, civil servant positions uh, would be hired or fired by the mayor. Uh, the mayor can appoint committee chairs at council, and the mayor has much uh, tighter control over the budget-making process, so uh, substantially more powerful than the conventional mayor's position has been in, in Ontario municipalities anyway, where the mayor has really just been uh, first among equals on council. Now, you did say that almost all the big cities in Ontario made the cut here. Who didn't? Uh, so a little wrinkle here. Uh, the city of Newmarket uh, doesn't quite have a population of uh, 100,000. Uh, it is above 80,000. Uh, but the province did say that they would include cities expected to grow to 100,000 by 2031. So Newmarket should have qualified under that rule. But they weren't included because the other rule the province has imposed here is that they're only giving these powers to mayors where the councils have endorsed the provincial housing pledges. These were uh, goals that the province set out of the number of new homes that these cities are supposed to build by 2031. Uh, Newmarket's mayor has not endorsed the housing pledge, and here's what uh, Minister Clark had to say about that last week. We extended strong mayor powers to all, every community that uh, enacted a housing pledge. Um, they did not, but we're certainly giving them and, and other um, municipalities the opportunity. 
Now, let's focus a little more on the region in which Newmarket finds itself, and that's York Region, because the mayor of Markham, another city in York Region, his name is Frank Scarpitti, and he's had that job since 2006. He floated a trial balloon last week. We know that Peel Region is de-amalgamating over the next 18 months, but Scarpitti wants York Region to go in the opposite direction, to amalgamate all the individual municipalities in York into one giant super city of more than a million people. So we're talking here Markham and Vaughan, Richmond Hill, and Newmarket as well as a bunch of smaller towns. JMM, we know the arguments for de-amalgamating Peel. We heard those ad nauseum from people in Mississauga for the last several years. Uh, what would the reasons be for amalgamating all the cities and towns in York? About the same arguments as are always made for amalgamating municipalities, uh, namely that there are efficiencies to be had from consolidating services under one administration. I say that's the argument that is made, but because I can already hear people in the city of Toronto typing angry emails at me, I want to add that amalgamation as it actually played out in Toronto and, and other large cities that were amalgamated, uh, particularly in the uh, Harris and Eves governments, it really hasn't delivered the promised cost savings goods. If However, York were amalgamated. It would be a a pretty massive city in terms of uh, land area, if nothing else. We're talking about something that would stretch from Toronto's northern border all the way to Lake Simcoe, uh, including uh, both large cities like Vaughan and Markham that we've mentioned, as well as uh, several other smaller towns and and a very rapidly growing region uh, in terms of population as well. Now, let's state the obvious. York region cannot do this on its own. Cities, towns, villages, hamlets, and yes, regional governments as well are all You hear this expression, creatures of the province. So it would require the Ontario government to allow this to happen. And guess what? Doug Ford does not sound interested. Well, we just aren't in favor of it. This is up to all the mayors. It's not up to one mayor to go out there and say, you know, you want to build your empire. This is about all the, I believe, seven uh, different uh, cities. Uh, I know all of them. They aren't in favor of it. One mayor is. Uh, We listen to the people. We listen to all the mayors. And uh, so we aren't doing it. Now, that's not to say there won't be any municipal reform in York Region over the next 18 months, right? That's right. Uh, When the Ford government announced that the region of Peel would be dissolved, uh, the Premier also announced that other regions around the GTA would be studied uh, to see if changes in their regional government would be necessary. So that's York Region, Durham Region, Waterloo, but also Simcoe County and a few others. Uh, So uh, Mayor Scarpetti can make his case again to those regional uh, supervisors, or uh, I forget exactly the the title they've used, but those those provincial appointees, he can make his his case again to uh, whoever becomes the the overseer of uh, York region reform. Uh, none of those people have been appointed yet, as far as we know, uh, but the government assures that it is coming, as they say, in the fullness of time. <laughs> Love that expression. On to issue two. We talked about Toronto's acting mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, last week, and this week, We have to talk about her again for two reasons. First, because I need to correct a mistake I made last week. I said she was a rookie counselor, and in fact, she is now in her second term. And second, she made some news last week by endorsing a candidate for mayor. Now, up until now, she has stayed studiously neutral in the race to replace John Tory. 
but not any longer. Uh, that's right. Uh, Deputy Mayor McKelvey has uh, come out in support for Anna Bailao, the uh, former city councillor from the ward of Davenport. You know, Bailao has uh, racked up a ton of endorsements. We mentioned uh, some of them in previous episodes. Uh, two former mayors, lots of city councillors, important unions, and now the uh, deputy mayor and acting mayor. Uh, despite that, she's still a pretty distant second in one poll to frontrunner Olivia Chow. And in most other polls, she's actually further behind than second place, uh, well behind uh, Le- Chow leading again. So there's no reason to believe that McKelvey is being uh, insincere in any way with her endorsement. But you know, she was closely associated with uh, ex-mayor John Tory. Uh, he made her the deputy mayor. Uh, and so I, I think this does mean that this is the closest we are going to get to the ex-mayor wading into the race to succeed him. I had mentioned uh, in a previous episode that I thought the only thing that could really shake up the, the mayoral race would be if John Tory uh, actually came out and endorsed somebody. The fact that McKelvey has, I think, is probably the closest we're going to see right now. Election Day, we remind everybody, is Monday, June 26th. And as we sit here taping this, there are still no candidates who have dropped out of the race and endorsed any other candidate, which basically means as long as Chow can get her vote out, she's almost certainly going to win because the anti-Chow vote is split among so many other candidates. JMM, luckily for Chow, none of her competitors has emerged as the single most obvious anti-Chow candidate. Uh, that's right. Uh, Mark Saunders has tried to frame the election as uh purely Chow v. Saunders. Uh, She being the most electable progressive candidate in the race, he uh, being the most electable conservative candidate in the race. Uh, But that showdown between the two of them so far hasn't really happened. Uh, Anthony Fury, a Toronto Sun columnist and another conservative candidate, uh, has done better than expected. And I think you could say fairly that uh, his votes are... uh, probably coming at Saunders' expense. Uh, I will just add very quickly that uh, Fury's vote uh, share, I mean, well, more or less everybody is in, you know, a a tie for distant second or distant third. Uh, You know, Fury is in some of these polls getting like 80% of the vote that Saunders is getting. So you can get lost in definitions here, but at least in the conservative side of things, he's very competitive at the moment. You know, turnout is obviously going to be key. Uh, the polls have been pretty categorical since the beginning that this is Chow's race to lose. Once she got into the race, she had the lead and really hasn't lost it. Uh, but so far, it looks like turnout is going to be pretty low. I mean, I just, again, you want to be careful with anecdote, but like, I'm not seeing even a lot of signs out on the streets. I, d- I don't think that people are... Um, plugged into this race uh, as much. And, and that I really hoped that they would be. Uh, and so we'll see. But uh, if turnout is, in fact, very low, uh, the suspicion uh, is going to be that she's only going to be vulnerable to a loss if she fails to get that vote out. Uh, we will, of course, know in less than a week now. And now on to issue three. Liberals have been knocked down before, but we dust ourselves off and we get back into the fight. <laughs> Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie last week confirmed the worst-kept secret around. She is no longer considering running for the Ontario Liberal leadership. She's in. And most of the pundits seem to think that her late entry into the contest, despite that, 
She's the frontrunner, given her profile, organization, and experience. Crombie's a former liberal MP, so she has national experience. She just won her third election as the mayor of Mississauga and managed to convince Premier Ford to de-amalgamate Peel Region, so she's got that municipal experience. And now she's vying for a position in provincial politics, and she's got backroom boy Tom Allison chairing her campaign. Allison, you may know that name because he led Kathleen Wynne to the leadership victory 10 years ago, so he knows how to do this. Uh, So lots of speculation that Don Valley West MPP Stephanie Bowman would get into the race too, but uh, she did not. She, in fact, introduced Crombie at her campaign kickoff, and uh, we know where her sympathies now lie. Uh, Nate Erskine-Smith has, you know, really claimed the mantle early of being the anti-Crombie candidate in the race to beat, criticized Crombie for her uh, comment that she made about how the the Liberal Party would need to govern from the center-right, has criticized her housing record as mayor, uh, has criticized her comments about other orders of government taking over some responsibilities such as childcare. That was in the context of Crombie saying that uh, the previous Liberal government had spent too much on some some forms of social spending. So, you know, we can see this clash. uh, I would say it's brewing, but it's not even brewing. It's it's there right now happening uh, between uh, Nate Erskine-Smith, who wants the party to uh, maybe stay on the more progressive side of things that it landed with Kathleen Wynne uh, versus uh, Bonnie Crombie, who uh, says that she wants the party to return more to the center. Now, while we're talking uh, liberal leadership politics, we should note that on Monday, Kingston MPP Ted Shu announced that his campaign co-chairs, well, there's going to be three of them. Tragically hip guitarist Rob Baker, who's, of course, from Kingston as well, former McGinty-era agriculture minister Carol Mitchell, and former Peterson and McGinty-era cabinet minister Greg Sorbera. So, okay, let's chat about this. What's the significance that you see in any of that? Well, two things. Uh, One, our listeners might dimly recall back in the mists of prehistory, by which I mean January of this year, uh, (laughs) that a bunch of liberals wrote a letter urging Mike Schreiner of the Green Party to join the liberal leadership race. Uh, Sorbera was one of those liberals. And, you know, folks may remember the argument. The liberals needed someone totally untouched by the McGinty and Wynn years. Shu never served as an MPP during those years. And uh, Sorbera clearly thinks that's an asset. Uh, but the second point here is that, you know, Sorbera's own prominence in the party may cause some people who have uh, overlooked Shu to pay more attention to him. I think he has struggled a bit to uh, be heard uh, in a race that is shaping up to be Crombie v. Erskine-Smith. Sure. Let, let's also say that the Liberal Party right now is basically non-existent in rural Ontario. I mean, they, they, they have um, riding associations that don't have treasurers, that don't have directors, that don't have, you know, presidents. Uh, There are a lot of dead letters, uh, starting with LIB in rural Ontario. And having the name Carol Mitchell, who is a former agriculture minister from Huron-Bruce, that's a sign that Shu's campaign certainly hopes to rebuild in rural Ontario. And when Dalton McGuinty won three straight elections in 2003, 2007, and 2011, His Liberal Party won seats such as Huron-Bruce and Perth-Wellington and Prince Edward Hastings. So rural seats where the Liberals have just been uncompetitive over over the past two elections. So anyway, I suspect Mitchell's name on the shoe masthead is meant to signal a bit of game on with the other Liberal leadership contenders about getting more of rural Ontario back into the Liberal column. I mean, it's a tough order because they really have been struggling. I mean, not since 2018, but as you say, since 2011, I mean, green energy alone did a a real number to liberal fortunes in rural Ontario. But I mean, out of curiosity, 
do Greg Sorbera and Ted Shue actually have much history? Well, you know, I wondered about that too. So I, I reached out to Greg Sorbera on Monday to find out why he would agree to such a senior role on a campaign with a guy who I didn't think he knew all that well. And he confirmed that. The two of them have never actually met, although they've spoken on the phone. And basically, here's what happened. Ted Shue made his pitch for Sorbera's support, and he got it. And one of the reasons he got it is that Sorbera notes that Ted Shue has one thing that the three other candidates vying for leader in this race do not have. Now, think, dear listener, what could that be? What could that be? That's a seat in the Ontario legislature. Okay, Ted Shue's an MPP today. And we saw how difficult it was for the former leader, Stephen Del Duca, to be an effective leader when he did not have a seat at Queen's Park. The tradition is when a new leader is crowned, if they don't have a seat, then someone else from the caucus resigns their seat and the new leader runs in the ensuing by-election and that's how they get in. But that's not a great option for the Liberals. They've only got seven seats today and you really can't afford to risk losing any more. So Shu already is an MPP. He theoretically could hit the ground running at Queen's Park if he were to win this convention. So Sorbera sees that as a big advantage over the other three candidates, all of whom he hastened to add he likes and respects. I will add here that, you know, I've asked uh, Crombie and Erskine Smith and Yasser Nakfi whether they think not having a seat in the House is uh, a huge deficit for them. Unsurprisingly, they will say no. They don't believe it is. I'm shocked. Shocked Um, to hear that. But it's, you know, it's an interesting case of like, what story do you tell about uh, what what happened last year, right? Was it the fact that Stephen Del Duca didn't have a seat in the legislature that hurt the party uh, that much? And uh, obviously, for those other three uh, candidates, they don't uh, think that was the the key thing that went wrong. Um, But, you know, uh, Sorbera won a lot of elections with the Liberals, and I I would uh, give his opinion on this kind of a matter a a lot of weight. Up next, a visit from TiVo's affordability reporter on the biggest issue in the Toronto mayoral campaign, housing. Skyrocketing housing and rental costs, inflation, and just the general cost of living is constantly referred to by candidates and voters alike as the biggest issues in the Toronto mayor's race. The new mayor of Canada's largest city will have a front row seat in trying to fix all that. With that in mind, let's welcome back Kat Eschner, TVO's affordability reporter. There she is. Hi, Kat. Hi, Steve. Welcome to our little hovel here at 2180 Young Street. Uh, Your beat is affordability, which encompasses, of course, a heck of a lot of things. Um, Based on what you're hearing, seeing, reading, thinking about out there, housing at the top of the list? I think affordability generally. Housing is the top of the affordability list. Um, But it's also, you know, everything from transportation to city maintenance, you know, so cities, the city's actual own affordability issues to, you know, the, the the city's spending priorities, such as the police budget. I think all over all of that, though, over the affordability, over everything, it's just this kind of concern or sense that Toronto is a city in decline. This is my read. This isn't my opinion. Um, and I think that that feeling and the promise of being able to to rectify it or address it is what's really, really driving voters. Part of that city in decline is the, the feeling of our uh Maybe the, the, the available resources not matching the uh, demands we have for the city services. The city has this huge budget shortfall that is uh, in part due to COVID and the aftershocks of that, but uh, not entirely due to that. Uh, how are candidates responding to that budget shortfall? 
Well, I, I think they're they're sort of broadly, I'm just speaking broadly here, taking a few different approaches. They're saying that one of the ways we can address the, the budget hole, the budget shortfall, is through rationalization. We can trim money from here, take money from there, find money elsewhere. Um, they're saying, you know, we can hit up the province or even the feds for money. They're invoking the idea of, uh, you know, raising city fees for certain services or secondary taxes, such as the um, land transfer tax, to using those mechanisms to use more, raise more revenue. And then, of course, the sort of boogie man is property taxes. What are candidates saying about the the rental crisis, really, skyrocketing rental prices in the city of Toronto? Uh, I think Olivia Chow is the candidate here who sort of prioritizes renters' needs and renters uh, renters the most as a group, which is important because Toronto, uh, the, the fastest growing demographic in Toronto is renters, and about half of Toronto is renters. Historically, we've treated renting as kind of this, like, second class option. Where you know you rent for a while and then you buy, and now I mean that's out of out of my reach, um, so the reach of most people, um, and it's looking like increasingly we'll be a city of renters, but we're a city whose rental protections have been eroded. So one of the things that candidates are talking about is bringing more attention to rental protections, making sure that city-owned housing is is better maintained. Um, they're talking about also building new housing. Missy Hunter here is talking about building on city land. Josh Matlow also has a, a plan about this, and many of the other candidates. Um, so it's it's about supply partially, but they're, the one thing that like on rent that people have talked about, but I feel like is very difficult for them to promise is, you know, rent control. So buildings first occupied after November 15th, 2018 are not governed by the province's rent control guidelines. You can raise the rent however much you want, and landlords are. Um, and of course, I've heard candidates say, you know, I will do something about this. They can't do anything directly about this. They have to work with the province. But I think it... Um, it bodes well that it's part of the discussion. Well, that begs the question, because uh, you're quite right. Most of the powers to deal with this issue are held by the provincial government, not the city. What could the next mayor of Toronto do in terms of powers available to him or her uh, to help people with the financial pressures they're feeling about affording rents? There's actually a lot of stuff. Uh, number, number one is probably property taxes, which nobody likes to talk about, but we do... Frankly, I think to get any funding from any other level of government, uh, we do need to raise property taxes because the province and the feds are very rightly going to say you have the lowest property taxes in your region. You are a very wealthy city with a bunch of people sitting on very wealthy land. I don't understand why you're asking us for money when you have these incredibly low taxes. Um, You know that part of rent, though, includes property taxes, which landlords would undoubtedly pass along to tenants if they could. Yeah, but landlords will pass on every single thing they can. I don't think that that's a reason to not raise property taxes. You know, tenants and notably people who occupy multi-unit buildings already pay a higher property tax rate than people in single-family homes. So And condos. And condos, yeah. So I think another another thing you could do is you could talk about, and we're seeing candidates, again, Hunter here, we're others as well, Brown, talking about, you know, progressive property taxes. So they're talking about a tax that would hit the people who have the most, who have the most resources and have the most ability to bear it, and would spare other people who don't. The exact sort of policy nitty gritties of how you accomplish that, very much like in the pudding, but that is sort of the the, the thrust of that. So there's property taxes. 
a direct way they can impact affordability in the city is by trying to be really smart about how and trying to be a really smart leader in council about how funding is allocated. So, for instance, a big line item, the police budget, Josh Matlow has said that he would freeze the police budget for several years. So that's a way that, again, just one example of a way that you could find money in the budget that already exists. Uh, Another way is zoning reform and flexibility. So we're having a housing crisis. Part of the housing crisis is because it's very difficult to build in this city. It's far more difficult than many say we should be. Um, you know, the city recently changed bylaws that will probably have much farther reaching impacts than anything that the province has done on uh, affordability in this city, just in terms of the multi-unit um John, do you remember what that what what is that called? It's the multiplex zoning uh, reforms. I forget exactly what that was, the, but basically, the city council earlier this year uh, did pass a, a package of bylaws to let people build up to four units on uh, a residential lot uh, anywhere in the city. I wrote for this at TVO.org. People can check that out. Uh, I, I, as Kat says, I think it's it's going to be uh, far-reaching, though it it may not deliver as many units as uh, we hope, though I am sort of optimistic about that. But yes, it's, it's, it's a, an important thing to, to keep in mind. Yeah, I think I actually sniped the phrasing more far-reaching directly from a conversation <laughs> we had. So that that's uh, John Michael McGrath, everybody. Um, and the other thing that they can do that I think is not discussed as much is, is food reform. Uh, and food availability, which is something that different candidates have addressed. Um, we're seeing, again, Chow is another notable one here. A number of the progressive candidates have said we will include some kind of plan for food security so that, again, that might come down to zoning to where grocery stores are, where you know food deserts are, something the city can directly impact. But it might also come down, and it does also come down to stuff like community gardens, which are really important sources of like, maybe we think of community gardens as sort of this frou-frou, like, oh, you know, look at me with my vegetable patch thing. But they're actually very important sources of fresh fruits and vegetables and fresh nutrients for uh, people often in marginalized communities, as well as sort of being a community building exercise. So I think that they're another really important way that the city, which is kind of like... Toronto can be very much like three bylaw officers in a trench coat. They're like, no, you can't do anything here. You can't, you know, the only things that are permitted are the things we say. Um, I kind of think that regime is a little bit problematic in and of itself, but one thing they can do is they can proactively say, you can build community gardens, here is some new land for them, or here is some new, not even funding necessarily, some new infrastructure for this, you know, a new policy or whatever to sort of prevent um, our very complaints-based bylaw enforcement system from coming for the community gardens. That's another way that the city, I think, can really notably impact affordability. So people are, uh, some people have already voted. People will be heading to uh, the ballot box in less than a week's time. What would you say to our listeners out there if they are considering uh, who to vote for? Uh, What should they be looking for in the plans from candidates? Like, it's very easy in politics to get lost in the nitty-gritty and the small stuff and the specific policies, specific bylaws, specific funding for specific item. And I think that that's important, and I think especially at the city level, it can be very important because the city is the one who provides you with all the municipal services you actually use. The nitty-gritty concretely affects your day in a way that, like, the provincial government has much less concrete effect on your day. But... I think when you're looking for a leader for the city of Toronto, which has a robust bureaucracy, which has many councillors who will be very quick and eager to raise any problems with potential policies, um, you actually need to be looking for two things. One, 
And I think this is the most important, is just like to make it through the next decade, the next 15 years, Toronto is going to need to fundamentally rethink the way it makes money. This is not a city that has a sustainable budget. Its own analysts say this, many others say this, you know, we can't be scrambling every year to get the province or the feds to cough up new money for us. And we can't be taking away, as we've all sort of lived through, taking away municipal services, taking away TTC, taking away all this stuff, to sort of shrink and shrink the amount of services that are provided. So... This probably, like, this almost certainly looks like raising property taxes. Um, if you're concerned about this issue, it's worth learning how to read a percent, like being really sure that when we're talking about a double-digit property tax increase, you understand that that is a percentage of what it currently is, which is very low, not actually you're going to be paying a, a 10% property tax every year. So looking for somebody who is who is willing to talk about tax increases, who is willing to talk about finding more money, and who is also willing to work with other levels of government as necessary, and seems like they have the chops to do that, to get more money. I do think that like the province should cough up for some stuff. The feds should probably cough up for some stuff. We are a really important part of Canada's economy, and we have had, you know, just the city of Toronto, like other municipalities, have had so many services and so much stuff download onto it, downloaded onto it over the last 20-odd, 25 years that, you know, we should be asking for more. The other thing that I think is really important is just looking for somebody who has the political chops and the political skill to actually work with multiple levels of government and with council in a way that, A, has vision— so actually, it isn't a John Tory stay the course situation because that clearly did not work for Toronto right now. Whatever you may think of Tory's politics personally, this is clearly not the moment we need that. Just able to like bring that vision to bear, working with multiple stakeholders in a way that seems sustainable. And sometimes this means that they may have to go against the province. They may have to argue with the province, ask for more money. Sometimes this means they may have to support the province. Someone who can do both, someone who can be as politically flexible as necessary to actually get the job done and represent Toronto is who I would be looking for. I think if John Tory supporters are listening, they would want it put on the record that he was pretty good at getting hundreds of millions of dollars out of senior levels of government. I shouldn't say that. David Miller always hated it when I said that. Out of different orders of government... Uh, because he doesn't see anybody as senior or junior. But anyway, uh, John Tory did a pretty good job getting lots of money out of other out of other levels of government. I'm not talking about John Tory's monetary record even. I'm talking about his vision and lack thereof. I think that there is a real problem and a real sense, especially from younger voters, that, you know, City Hall was kind of proceeding as normal in a time when things were becoming less and less normal and that the issues such as housing affordability that were most affecting them were not being addressed with the level of urgency and gravity that was needed. That's Kat Eschner. She is TVO's affordability reporter, and you can read her stuff on TVO.org. Kat, thanks for visiting us here in the little voice booth at 2180 Young Street for the On Poly podcast. Always a pleasure, Steve. And that is the On Poly Podcast for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I try to figure out whether we can have an adult conversation about the boundaries of the Greenbelt, given Bonnie Crombie's comments that, yes, she can imagine circumstances where some Greenbelt land could be developed in exchange for putting other lands into the Greenbelt. It's caused a bit of a foo so JMM and I are going to talk about it in our weekly newsletter. Yet I don't believe you used the word foo in the newsletter itself. I don't think I did, so <laughs> all the more reason to use it here. Also, make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show too. 
Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here's a review from someone named Joseph who writes, quote, Probably the most informative podcast about Ontario and Ontario politics out there, delivered with wit and depth. Thank you, Joseph. That's very nice. JMM, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think I'm the wit he's referring to, and I think you're the depth he's referring to. What do you think? Uh, Does that make me witless? I hope not. No, surely not. (laughs) Surely not. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shayer Tajvidi. Okay, production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. And uh, one last note here before we go. We record this podcast normally on Monday afternoons, so it is in your inbox for first thing Tuesday morning. But next Monday is Election Day in Toronto, and we're not going to record until we know who the new mayor is. So that might mean we're in your iPhone or laptop or desktop a little later than normal next Tuesday. Fair warning. Obviously, we have to talk about Toronto's next mayor. We can't do podcasts without knowing that. So we shall hold off long enough until we know who the winner is. Although I think we... No, I'm not even going to say we already know. I'm not even going to say. You never know. John Michael, it's an election. You never know what can happen. You're you're giving yourself a Dewey defeats Truman moment. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Until then, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.